liquor is working. Good. It's a good thing. So I'm going to spill the beans. I won't, I won't, I won't identify the specific um, of my offspring that we did this to, but one April Fool's Day, okay, I had gotten one of those plug-ins that you can control with, a, with the app to turn power off or on, okay? And I told everybody but one of my kids that I had this thing. And we set it up so that I could turn the lamp off with my phone. And we didn't tell the one kid, again, it narrows down to four people, but we'll just I'm gonna leave it at that. And so I told her about it, I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to say we're having an electrical problem, and I'm going to turn this lamp off and on and see what happens. So April Fool's evening, we're all sitting around, and I just touch that thing, and the lamp comes on. And everybody's playing their part, right? And they're like, what happened? I'm like, oh, I don't know. It's weird. And so then we're sitting a little longer, and I turned it off. And the one you didn't know was going... And so I said, I felt we're having some sort of weird electrical problem, maybe grounded or something. I guess it's dangerous. I'm like, well, definitely could be. You know, be, be careful, don't get around it. So then I just start hitting the button off and on, off and on. <laughs> I said, turned around. And we're all dying because it's, it's. And so this goes on for a long time. And then finally we reveal, hey, this is what happened. We're like, oh, oh party, or party. Everybody that was in on the joke loved it. The person who wasn't, not so much. Right? <laughs> I was. Awfully proud of myself. That second one of those dreams the whole time. One time I called my brother and said I was the IRS and that we were going to audit him. That was awesome too. <laughs> but if you're not in on the joke, if you don't know what's going on, things can get really confusing, really scary, really weird. So have you ever watched a movie or, or, or read a book that had an unreliable narrator? Okay, what that means is you get to the end and you realize that not everything they said was true. Even some of the scenes and some of the long stories were just made up. You know, I feel betrayed, right? I would never, ever, ever suggest you watch this movie. But the, the latest Joker movie, Joaquin Phoenix is the Joker, is a perfect example of that. It's told from his perspective and you get to the end and you're like, I don't think all that was true. And you're like, ah. You're not in on the joke, right? Just the person who's handling things. Well, I would dare suggest that in our lives, we are the unreliable narrator. There's somebody who knows everything. There's somebody who's unfolding the story of our lives and our life individually, our lives together, who knows everything. And we're kind of freaking out when the lamp comes on, right? And we're telling the story like it was awful, it was scary, I was afraid it would be shot. And everybody's just going, <laughs> Well, today, we're going to see in the book of Ruth in chapter 2, a bunch of people who don't know the full story. And we're going to get into the heart and the mind and the depths of the one who does. And then we're going to see how that affects us in our lives today. If you would, please stand as we read the Bible, God's holy word, the very words of God. We're going to read Ruth chapter 2. This book is just, the hardest part of this book is figuring out what to cut out of these messages. Um, Ruth 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the 
Moabites said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. After him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they finish all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his with young women less than another field, you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, cleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother. Father, thank you for your word. We ask for your Holy Spirit to teach us, convict us, draw us, give us life if we don't know you this morning. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. First section we're going to take is verses 1 to 7. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and live among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said, Here, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you, and they answered, The Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his young man, who's in, who's in charge of the reapers? Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back.
back to thank me from the country of Moab. Where else would a Moabite come from? She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So we've turned the page from chapter 1, right? Chapter 1, uh, basically we're going to sum up Ruth in four R words as we go through the four chapters. And we can sum up the first chapter with a good R word, which is ruin. We saw famine and loss and death and bitterness and separation and lots of other hard, rough stuff. But chapter 1 had ended with a couple of rays of light, right? Ruth chose to be with Naomi, to cling to her. And a barley harvest was happening in Bethlehem, and that's how the chapter ended. So all that darkness and then a little bit of light there. Well, we're summing up this chapter, chapter 2, with the word relief. Okay, we've gone from ruin to relief. Chapter 2 is a completely different beast than chapter 1 was. And it starts with the writer introducing, rather briefly, a new person in the narrative. And now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now Boaz, whose name means, in him there is strength, or in him there is might, is first presented to us in his relationship to the story's main character. The main character is Naomi. Okay? We call it Ruth, but really Naomi is the main character. And, and we meet Boaz here, this brief introduction, before we really get to know him, as in his relationship to Naomi. He is a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech had been Naomi's husband. He had passed away while they were in Moab. But but now wait a second. What did Naomi say? I've gone out full and I've come back empty. Well, is she empty? There's family here. There's family here in Bethlehem, right? Turns out she's not empty. Which just kind of speaks to me this. When we're hurting, when we're in pain, we tend to exaggerate a little, don't we? I mean, I'm not saying it to be mean. It's just true. So you got a splinter underneath your finger. I mean, that hurts, right? On a scale of 1 to 10, what's your pain? 7. Really? Yeah, it's a splinter. I watched my wife give birth to four children. Her pain's not a 7. I promise it's not. But it feels like it's a 7, right? Because it's, oh, oh, this hurts so bad. But, but Naomi, who said she's come back empty, actually has a worthy man in her husband's family from the same clan as Elimelech here in Bethlehem. And that's all we see of Boaz until verse 4, by the way. And that's a literary device of an omniscient, reliable narrator to pique our interest. Oh, there's this guy named Boaz. Now, Ruth and Naomi. And we're going to meet Boaz later, but just insert it in there. Oh, by the way, this may turn out to be important. And it surely does, right? But the narrative goes back to a discussion between Naomi and Ruth. This book is full of conversations, back and forth between people talking. And now we see one between these two widows at the time of the barley harvest. Hey, there's this guy named Boaz. Now back to Ruth and Naomi. Okay? Um, so they're having this conversation. It's at the time of the barley harvest. And Ruth is leading a conversation. And note how she's referenced back here in verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi. Now, Ruth the Moabite. Now, that's not just a descriptor. 
Okay? It's a pointed reminder that Ruth ain't from around here, y'all. It's be like, again, I, I talk about this probably more than I should, but growing up in the 80s, we hated Russian people. The Russians were going to kill us. They were going to nuke us, right? So it would be like if I knew this person from Russia, and every time I mention them, I'm like, it's the Russian. And I'm like, okay? Gorbachev, no! You know, it's just, everything's a group. So every time we see this word Moabite or hear the word Moab, know that the Jewish people are going to go, okay? It's not just a, a descriptor. It's really kind of a way to draw attention to the fact that she's not one of us. And I promise you, those original ears would associate a Moabite with being an outsider, a Gentile dog, a foreigner, not part of the covenant blessings of God that were meant for the Jews alone. And we read it and don't think anything of it, but this is important. The tagline Moabite is not a gentle nor a favorable name. But this Moabite is found to be doing what? She is seeking to operate in the ways of the people of God to provide for her mother-in-law, who is herself a Jewish lady. And so this Moabite woman says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favors. Now what does that mean? So we know it's time for the barley harvest. And it just so happens, and we'll say that a lot today, God has made a way for poor and helpless people to, to be provided for in times of their needs. We're going to look at two Old Testament passages. first one is Deuteronomy 24. 19 through 22. This is God giving the law a second time to his people before they come into the promised land. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheep in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember, Jewish people, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this, God says. Back in Leviticus, he said it this way. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The point here is that the landowners would purposefully help provide for the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, the outsider... By leaving sheaves and grain for them to come and gather as it is left there at the command of God. Don't reap to the very edges of your field. And if you drop a sheave, leave it. Don't bring in the sheaves. Leave, leave the sheaves, okay? Because somebody else can use that. And so Ruth knows this, okay? She is familiar with the customs and the laws of her new God. And remember, she said, your God shall be my God. And so she's been taught the ways of God, the law of God. And she knows, hey, my new God, my God has made provision for us. I'll go glean because it's time for the harvest. Which is just lucky, right? It's just a coinky dink. 
she leave it? It makes you wonder if maybe, just maybe, God orchestrated some drop sheep in his divine providence, doesn't it? Listen to me. God is in everything. Working in and through everything. Even a drop sheaf. Shiv, shiv, shav, shavah. I don't know. Sheaf. Not a sheaf falls to the ground that he does not know about it. And I would say is in charge of it. So Ruth knows these provisions. She says, hey, it's harvest time. God's made a way to provide for us in this time. So let me get busy. And ends her petition with this nugget. After him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now note that. She's hoping to get some grain by working, yes, but there's something else she's actively seeking. She's seeking favor from someone. Now be careful here. Here's the Hebrew word. When you speak Hebrew, you better we would say chin, but that's not right. It's come, come. Um, happened 69 times, and, and it's translated as grace, favor, gracious, pleasant, precious, well-favored, favor, grace, charm, favor, grace, ele elegance, favor, and acceptance. Now, hold on a second, okay? So it's grace. She's looking to find grace, hoping that somebody will show her grace. Now, you don't work to get grace, by the way, and we'll talk about that later. But she's saying, hopefully I'll go out here and I'll work and I'll gather some grain and maybe I'll find favor or grace in someone's eyes. But now look at this one word. Three lines down, second word from the right. What's that word? Pleasant. Like, what's your point? Naomi means pleasant, right? But she said, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. And Ruth is seen knowing that Naomi has been pleasant and now is saying she's not pleasant anymore. So Ruth has seen Naomi as pleasant. She's heard her pronounce herself as bitter. She, Ruth knows the law of God and she's working to operate within that law of God and hoping, it seems, to help Naomi and her find grace. To help Naomi find her pleasant. So good. Not me, this. <laughs> it's almost like she's saying, let me go work and get us some food, and maybe I'll receive grace from someone and you can get your pleasant back. And old bitter Naomi says, go, my daughter. She's feeling not so empty now. She's paying attention to Ruth's presence now, even calling her daughter. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Now back here in Ruth, chapter 2, verse 3, we see this. She, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elam. Ruth goes and works by reaping in a field, and the writer says she happened to end up in Boaz's field. Oh, that guy, we met him, right? We met him back in verse 1. Now, the literal wording, according to Tony Merida, is, quote, and her chance chanced upon the allotted portion of the field of Boaz. John Piper says it should read, the happenstance that happened to her. <laughs> and it's like the author is smiling and winking. 
right? Using air quotes here, happened. And the people that don't understand go, what? What? And everybody gets it, go, oh. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now listen, we talked about sheaves falling down. We know that this is the work of God, right? And one of the major emphases of this book of Ruth is God working in and through everyday situations and circumstances, which we call providence. The unseen hand that you have to be blind not to see. And the hits just keep coming, verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And behold, feels like we're back in Matthew, right? That's Matthew's word, behold. And what do we say it means? It means stop and pay attention. Something significant is happening here. We maybe write, I'd write it this way. Well, would you looky, looky here? Well, just then Boaz shows up. Ruth's happenstance happens to find her in Boaz's field. And behold, who shows up but Boaz? Now, what kind of man was Boaz before he met this Moabite woman? He was a ruthless man. <laughs> I borrowed that. I saw that. That was a Stephen Arterburn's joke, by the way. And I saw it this week, and I'm like, I just happened to see that this week. <laughs> anyway, Boaz shows up, and his first words in the book are a prayer for blessing for his workers. And those words are returned with his workers designed for him to be blessed as well. Which shows a pretty healthy relationship between them. What if you showed up at work every morning and your boss said, the Lord be with you today? Yeah. <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> and you loved him enough to say, and may the Lord bless you too. What a way to start your work day. This shows a pretty healthy relationship between them. And that speaks volumes of this man's worth, I think. And by the way, aside, just especially younger people, look up at me for a second if you're under 18. If somebody greets you, look at them and greet them back. Okay? Hello? No, 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 no. Hello? Hey, how are you? Show interest in other people, especially when they greet you. Look at them and greet them back. Sorry, that's free. So anyway, they, he greets them, they greet him back. Um, back to Ruth. So Boaz sees Ruth and he asks the guy whom he has put in charge of his reapers, who, whose is this young lady? Which kind of shows his attitudes toward women at this time, right? And don't miss the young descriptor there. There must be an age discrepancy between Ruth and Boaz. And that's going to be important in the next chapter, not so much right now. And note how the guy responds. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi, Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. And she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Again, you, you see those already previously used descriptors again. The young, young, Moabite woman. She's young and she's a Moabite. 
look at that tomato. And again, this Moabite thing's not a descriptor. It's an epithet. It's a name. It does. You can almost see the snarl of the lip as he says it. The Moabite woman from Moab. And he goes on to say that Ruth had asked to work in the field and had done so since early morning until now except for a short rest. Ruth's a worker, y'all. And now things really start happening. Watch verses 8 to 13. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drunk. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said, Then why do I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner, a Moabite. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. Interesting. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you, be careful of that, for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So Boaz tells Ruth, you stay in my field. Hang out with the young women that are hanging out here, gleaning, reaping with them. He says that he has told the men, don't you touch her. Because that would have been a common practice. Okay? Young men, especially in the time of the judges, when everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, you catch a woman out in the field on her own, fill in the blank, right? Boaz says, I've told them they don't touch you. Nobody here touches you. And if you want to drink, you drink from the water pot that they've drawn. Now listen, if she drank from that water pot, it's unclean now. He has made her at home in his field and wants to make clear to her that she will be safe and she will be well taken care of here. And Ruth's got to be like, well, cool, it's about time things went my way, right? No. She is effusive. John Piper says that verses 10 to 13 may be the most important verses in the whole book. Watch her here in verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner. Now notice this. She does not speak of her rights. She does not point to her hard work. She doesn't catalog the things she's done for Naomi since she's been in Moab to here. She doesn't explain to Boaz why he should do what he did. Now she went out looking for grace and favor, right? She finds it. How does she respond to it? I'm not worried yet. She says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? She points out her outsiderness. She points out her other nationness. She should be excluded. And listen, it's not just racial bias, even though that is big here. We've looked at Deuteronomy 24 where God makes provision for poor people to glean, but a chapter before in Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6, I don't think I put that one in here. You trust me, it's in there. Write it down. Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter.
enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their Ammonites or Moabites. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Now God said that. Moabites will be too excluded from the assembly of Israel forever. And if she knew Deuteronomy 24, she knew Deuteronomy 23 as well. And she asked Boaz, why, why would you show me kindness or, or show grace to me? Because I'm a Moabite. Why? I'm a foreigner. And Boaz tells her why in response in verses 11 and 12. The Lord repay you for what you've done. But Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Now, note that. You came to a people that you did not know before. And what did Ruth say? I'm going to go where you go, be who you are, worship your God, your people shall be my people. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now we'll start at the end of this verse here to help make sense of all that. Boaz says that Ruth had come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. And that's the word Yahweh. The God of Israel. And that's monstrously huge here. Ruth didn't just move. She didn't just adopt some customs of Naomi's people. No, she quote took refuge under the wings of the Lord. Now what does that mean? It means a lot. When God describes his calling of Israel to be his people, he described it this way, Ezekiel 16, 6-8. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, Live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Now watch this. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Now, here in verse 8, God says to the Israelites, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Now that's just not, that's not just taking a part of a coat to cover somebody's unseemly places. To do that, to spread your coat over someone was a sign of espousal. Becoming one, marrying, entering into covenant with, God says. And Boaz says that Ruth has sought shelter under the wings of the Lord. And it's the same picture. It's the same ritual, the same rite. To take cover, to take, um, to be covered by somebody else's wings is this deal here. It's to have them espouse you. It's to have them cover you. It's to enter into a covenant with them. She had sought shelter under God's wings. Ruth had entered into a covenant with the God of Israel. A covenant that the God of Israel had established. And this is what Boaz is referring to. Uh, Bob read this morning out of Psalm 91. You'll be covered by his wings. 
under his pinions. That's the same picture. And I didn't tell Bob to read that, by the way. And I don't bring it up in this message. It's awesome. As he's reading them, well, that's so good. Ruth had entered into a covenant with the God of Israel. She had said that Naomi's God would be her God. She entered into covenant with God. She sought shelter under his wings. She trusted God to be her God. And thus, she acted as his, as God's, and served Naomi and clung to her as her reasonable service to this widow that she loved so much. And Boaz had heard about all that she had done and asked that God would repay her for her kindness to Naomi. And again, now be careful. God is not going to pay Ruth back for doing good deeds. Boaz's words are, the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord. Now we can jump to the conclusion that Boaz is being nice to Ruth as an effort to pay Ruth back as God's hands and feet. I'm being nice to you since you were nice to Naomi. And so God's repaying you for your kindness. But be careful. That thought pattern is like what the world calls karma. You've been nice, so I'll be nice to you. And listen to me. We don't take the world's ways. We don't talk about karma. Karma got you. Don't say that, church. Don't say that, Christian. Karma's not biblical. God owes no one anything. And repays no one as a debtor to their good deeds. The whole Bible is clear about that. And this little nugget here that may look like that's what's happening is completely contraindicated by the rest of Scripture. So no, Boaz is saying instead, and this is important to grasp, you sought shelter with Yahweh. And as such, you showed kindness to your mother-in-law. And now, just trust God to bless you in whatever you do since you are in covenant with Him. He is your blessing. Not the counting mindset. You did some good deeds, so God will do good things to you as a form of wages. But rather, you've shown your trust in God. Now watch Him bless His obedient people with the promised blessings of obedience under His covenantal oath. And listen, His covenant that He established with His people is all grace. God doesn't owe blessings to obedient people. He chooses to shower His grace on those who show to be His by their obedience. And I'm not just splitting hairs here. This is very important. Ruth asks why she's found favor with Boaz. Boaz says God is honoring His word since Ruth had trusted God to be her God. And we'll look at this a little bit more in application, but right now we've got to move on. And then watch this. This is so funny to me. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. She's still like, I just can't believe it. I just can't believe it. I just can't believe it. She can't fathom the blessings being shown to her, and she also can't see all that's going on in this episode of God's people either. That's later, though. But for right now, she takes a lunch break. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. 
It's just a pretty nice scene overall, right? It's just nice. She gets to sit with the Reapers at lunch. She's sitting with Boaz. Moabite enemy, once your enemy, now seated at your table. And she eats until she's full and she has leftovers. And when she went back out to work, Boaz made arrangements to let her glean in the best places and even for them to pull out some bundles for her specifically. Just drop them there, she'll pick them up. And she works until evening, beats out what she has, and it's an ephah. Now, best I can find, and there's a lot of different words here, that's about 30 pounds of barley grain. 30 pounds! That's a Sam size bag, y'all. <laughs> Ruth went out empty, and she came back full. Which is an exact reversal from Naomi's statement, isn't it? And that's what God's doing. And that you'll see a lot of reversals here in Ruth. And now she goes home. Watch this. And she took it up, this ephah, this 30 pounds of grain. What a woman. And went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left of her after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you live today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, this man's name with him I work today is, um, uh, Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead, exclamation point. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. One of our redeemers. Oh, funny how that works out. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth her daughter, It's good, my daughter, <laughs> that you go out with this young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother in law. I'm not going to make a mother-in-law joke here, by the way. <laughs> so all this happens back in the field. Ruth goes back home and shows Naomi all that she's got. And I love the fact, including the leftovers from her lunch. She shares her leftovers of her lunch with her mother-in-law. I'm going to put this in my pocket for Naomi. <laughs> Dip your bread in the wine. Okay, I'm going to put it in my pocket. <laughs> close relative. 
in line to redeem Elimelech's family name by taking the widow as his wife and having a child of that name as prescribed by the law of God. Not so empty or bitter all of a sudden, right? Looks like Ruth found Naomi's pleasant, didn't she? What an amazing turn of events. Who would have thunk it? Then the narrator just goes back to everyday details. So we've got this major revelation. Ruth tells how she was protected in Boaz's field. And he says, that's good because you can get assaulted in other places. Ruth has shown you glean through the barley and wheat harvest. And the chapter ends with, not, look out, here it comes. Woo-hoo! It don't end like that. Bright lights, rockets, music. But it ends with this statement. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Possible good news has come, but there's work to be done. And an ordinary day-to-day life to be lived. And that's life. And that's the end of our passage today. You're like, are you kidding me? You're going to leave me with it? She lived with her mother-in-law? And they all lived happily after her mother-in-law. Good news is it's not the end of the story. Just the end of our passage today. So we're going to look at application, and I didn't alliterate them, but the application points are grace, I'm sorry, back up first, work, grace, and providence. Work, grace, and providence. And so part of what I want to do is take what we've seen here in Ruth and then bring that into our lives today. And how do we figure out how work, grace, and providence figure into our lives? Okay? Well, with work, first and foremost, we do not work for our salvation. Okay? Ruth is not working here to try to earn somebody's favor so that they'll treat her nice. That's not what she's doing. Ruth is working to have food to eat, to help support her and her mother-in-law. That's why she's working. And she's not living in an entitlement mindset. Hey, um, we're widows. You all should take care of us. The provision in the law of God was what? What? If you're a widow, go out and glean. You're like, you're, you're talking down the welfare state. I'm not even going there today, okay? I could, but I'm not going to. Entitlement is the antithesis of grace. I deserve to be taken care of. I deserve for people to look at me and, and say, here, let, let, me, let me pay for that. Let me handle that. Let me do that. Instead, Ruth goes out and she works. Just hoping that the work will be enough reward in and of itself to support them. And maybe she'll find favor with somebody. That's grace. We'll get there in a minute. Ruth takes initiative. I'm going to do something. Law of God says if I go out and glean, there's provisions there as I go out and do. As I go out and work, God has promised provision. Imagine that. We should work. Right? She's not moaning about her circumstances. There's a thing that has faded away, I think. I don't know how or why. But it's called the Christian work ethic. Anybody ever heard of it? It's a thing. And what it means is Christians work hard. I want to hire Christians because they're hard workers. They're honest. I don't hear people talk about that anymore. 
places. Bar none. Not because of our talent, not because of our natural giftings, but because we work hard. We're honest people who want to please our masters and our masters. Reformation, part of what they dealt with there was the doctrine of vocation. It was not remove yourself from everyday life and go into a cloister where you can focus on God. It's go out there and do your work as you focus on God. Where's that at? There's something incredibly attractive, winsome, about a hard worker. And I'm not talking about working for your salvation. I want to be clear about that. I gotta work real hard to make God happy. No, 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 no. Never, 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 never. Since God is happy with me, I work hard. This is the way that we operate. How did that foreman describe Ruth, a white woman from Moab, who has worked for morning except for a short break? He took notice of her work ethic. And that's part of how he described her. Outside of the Moabite from Moab, she's worked from morning till now with just a short break. I say this and it's convicting to me. If you're lazy at work, you're sinning. Ecclesiastes 9.10 Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. How about this one? Ephesians 6, 5-9. Bondservants, workers, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Serve your boss like you would serve Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people who just don't the boss like busy. But as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from heart. What's the will of God here? Work. <laughs> Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. In the same way, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So if you're a boss... You ought to be a doggone good boss. Treat people with respect. Which Peter would say, and I didn't pull this in here, Peter would say, serve them well whether they're nice or not. Your job as a slave is, or a worker or an employee is to serve your boss like you're serving Christ. That's the Christian work ethic. And it would be doggone awesome if we were introduced it into our society. Because we want to please God. That's work. Now, grace. We do not work for our salvation. Salvation is a gift, a free gift from God. Unfortunately, I'm afraid we think so many times that we deserve grace. You said, Well, you just told me to work hard. I did. Absolutely did. And also said it's not to earn your salvation. Grace is, by its very definition, undeserved. And we treat the grace of God so many times, oh, ho-hum, this is what God does, this is what God should do because He should show me grace. No. 
He should not. John Piper says, grace makes humble people more humble. Ruth says, I'm going to go out and maybe I'll find favor with somebody. She finds favor and she says, why did I find favor? She worked hard and she says, why did I find favor? So when we're confronted with grace from God or from other people, we should say, well, okay, that makes sense. It doesn't make sense. The God who created everything coming down to bleed and to die to pay the penalty for your sins, that doesn't make sense. And you did nothing to earn or deserve that. You didn't figure that out. You didn't put the pieces together and say, okay, well, you have grace. Yeah, I got that now. Instead, we should be astonished that God treats us so kindly. We live in a culture, I'm afraid, that is shocked and astonished if people mistreat them. They were mean to me. Yeah. Because that's what people do. Sinners sin. And people are mean to people. That shouldn't shock you. I'm not saying you shouldn't be hurt. We talked about that last week. We all experience pain. I'm not saying we just accept it, but we shouldn't be shocked by it. We live in a broken, sinful world. Instead, we should be astonished if we're shown grace. We should set out to find favor and then marvel when we find it. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. I got nothing for that. I got no logic there. I got no mechanical equation that makes this make sense to me. We should, we should stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. We should wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous! How wonderful! And my song will ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And why does he show us this love? Because he has chosen to. He has entered into covenant with us. He has established a covenant with us. And that covenant is a covenant of grace. Sinclair Ferguson speaks of the loving kindness of God. Um, Ruth and uh, Naomi had said, Blessed is the one who has shown you kindness. That Hebrew word is chesed. Sinclair Ferguson says that's God's total commitment. Listen. This is grace. God's total commitment to bring to fruition the blessings he has promised in his covenant regardless of what it costs him. It's grace. And you don't deserve that. That's the very basis of our salvation. I'm going to read two passages that I use all the time in application. I can't help it. And don't care. Ephesians 1, 3, 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. 
In him we have redemption. There's that word. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And then there's this passage. And you were dead. And the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, having followed, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What's the next word? But. But! God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were his enemies, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. That's grace, y'all. And that's God's whole purpose and plan. To show grace to some of his enemies. And that should astonish you. Every day. Work, grace, and finally providence. What we see so much in the book of Ruth is God working in the ordinary events of every day. She lived with her mother-in-law, and God was at work. She went out to glean, God was at work. It's barley harvest time, and God was at work. Boaz shows up for see what's going on in his field, and God was at work. The foreman says, there's a oh, white woman, God's at work! A quick cursory observation, if you read through the book of Ruth, note how many times God is mentioned. It's not much. It's usually a, a, a let the Lord bless you, you as well. That's about it. You know what we don't see here? Nary a miracle. You know what we do see here? A lot of boring, humdrum, everyday life. And in the midst of it all, God is working. We see a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Remember chapter 1? It was awful, right? And God was at work. A little bit of relief today, and God's at work. Lunch, God's at work. Go out, Christian. Go out and do. And I promise, while you may not see God, He's working. And His purposes are being fulfilled. Shame, shame. Have or has. I don't know how to say that. Shane Shane is a group, a group of two guys. Shane Shane Ham. It doesn't matter. There's a song called Miracle by Shane and Shane. Every week I hear a story of a miracle. And if I'm honest, I'm tired of seeing none at all. 
I don't need to see the cancer go away. All I want is to know that it'll be okay. I don't need to see a dead man come to life. All I want is for you to fill me up inside. If we're chasing miracles, listen, God can do whatever God wants to do. But if you're chasing miracles, you're going to be sorely disappointed. And you're going to think that God's not at work. But here's the deal. God is at work. When you brush your teeth. When you get a flat tire. When you're at work. When you're having lunch and you got leftovers after lunch. God's at work. We don't need miracles nearly as much as we need to see the providence of God. Do what you do. Do what you can. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Trust God with the outcome to provide grace and favor. God's quiet hand is always at work, Tony Meredith says. He's not just at work in the miraculous when water flows from a rock. He's also at work as a desperate Moabite widow finds her way to the field of a generous redeemer named Boaz. And this is the key to Ruth's book. We do, and God operates through our doing. And it's not flashy. It's not miraculous most of the time. But here's the deal. Our perspective is, I don't see God. I don't feel God. I don't hear God. And I'm an unreliable narrator. And so there is a sovereign God seated in the heavenlies, on his throne, with angels circling and crying, Holy, holy, holy. And he is causing everything to work together according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now I'm going to read... One more section of that again. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's providence. And that's not just the key to Ruth's book. That's the key to your life. From their point of view, from our point of view, things are just happening. From God's point of view, he is in firm control of everything that is happening, has happened, and will happen. And that's true for you, too. Blessings, favor, in the everyday acts of normal people. That's what the book of Ruth is about. And you know what? That's what your life is about, too. Like I wouldn't go here. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. What does all mean? It means all. The good, the bad, the ugly, the things you'd rather not talk about. God's causing all of those things to work together for your good. The sin, the suffering, the pain, the birthday party, the leftover lunch. God's calling to work together for your good, to the praise of His glorious grace. This is the reliable narrator. If not this, 
go out there and do that. And when this doesn't make sense, and when this doesn't make sense, and when what I'm seeing doesn't make sense, what I'm feeling doesn't make sense, I come back and I let the reliable narrator tell me, trust me, child. I'm causing it all to work together for your good and for my glory. Our feelings, expectations, and experiences or thoughts are not reliable. This is for never changing, for being constant, for being consistent, for being sovereign, and for working every moment of our lives in your providence to accomplish your purposes, to achieve your will for our good and for your glory. God, I pray again, if there is anybody sitting here this morning who does not know you as their Lord, may they bow the knee because your Holy Spirit moves in and gives them life. Those who are dead in their trespasses, God, that they will be reborn.